Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler, and I'm enjoying that. <laughs> well, I'm in a good mood. Okay, now you why know why? That? Oh, because you're relaxed. I am relaxed, yes, because I just got back from a vacation and I'm relaxed, and that's great. But no, mostly because I just had a delicious meal. Okay. Um, I was telling you, I'm not going to say the name of the place because I don't want to give away uh, where you live. Mm-hmm. But you live near a... Um, what do you call a place that's like, it's not like, I guess it's a restaurant, but it's like counter service and tables. Yeah, it's, but it's not quite a diner either. Like it's just, yeah, sort of it's a, like an eatery. <laughs> I guess that sounds a little lofty too. <laughs> it's a place where you can get food. Let's yeah, put it that yeah. way. So there's a place near you <clears throat> that belongs to my favorite subgenre of Los Angeles eateries, mm-hmm. which is the place that from at first glance from the sign this is a type of very american food counter place yeah but and either like you know they like you know burgers is what this one looks like and then there or or subs is uh, another one or, or whatever but you go and you realize oh this is also owned by a korean family and they have an entire korean menu menu of yeah. awesome korean food is my fa- there are so many of these in los angeles um yeah the one in burbank uh that i used to go to when i worked in burbank uh it was a sub shop and then there's one near my work now that has the fanciest like oh it's an italian cafe yeah it's called cafe modigliani oh <laughs> and it's so and it's it's like you go there you can get smoothies you can get your cappuccino in the morning you can get or you can get a bomb-ass korean beef like bowl <laughs> <laughs> it's so good uh, this is like Babu's restaurant in Seinfeld <laughs> that he did, where he just wanted to do everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, except his native cuisine, and then Jerry convinced him to do that, and he went out of business. Yeah, he's a very bad man. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> okay, so yeah, I'm I'm full because I had a I had a delicious meal at the place near you. Uh, speaking of Seinfeld, I was thinking of you and my wife the other day. Okay, because you remember, do you remember me telling you I can't remember who was a movie journal or a main canon episode about how you and my wife both have the same complaint about me that you recommend things to me. And then I like, cause I already have my own like list of like, um, and I was watching Seinfeld and I was, and I was uh, so I'm Newman and you're Jerry is what happened here. Okay. <laughs> when Jerry is, Jerry is trying to get Newman to try switch brands of dental floss while they're on a stakeout. Wow. I don't remember that at all. Okay. It's well, it's you'll remember it's the sniffing accountant episode. They're on a stakeout while Kramer is in there. Yes. Okay. Here's to having fun all the time. Yes. Here's to feeling good all the time. Yeah. One of the greatest he drinks scenes ever. a beer while smoking a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he says, I'm hip to the whole bathroom scene. Um, <laughs> no, but in the car, it's Jerry and Newman and Jerry, tries to get Newman to try. He's like, here, try this new, this brand of dental floss or whatever. And Newman like refuses to try it. Cause he likes dento tape or something. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, and Jerry's like, so you won't even try it? No. And then Jerry goes, you know, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's what it must feel like to be Tyler or Natalie trying to get me to listen to a podcast that they like or watch a movie they like or, or whatever. I must, you, know, you must just want to say, David, you know, you're an idiot. Well, yeah, but you're not necessarily, you don't, that where, here's the thing. <clears throat> Newman was, was honest about, 
I'm not going to try it. <laughs> right. Okay. You say, yeah, all right. <laughs> and that's the end of it. Okay. Yeah. I guess New- so true. I would say you are worse than Newman oh, okay. in this situation. You're a dishonest Newman. Um, incidentally, I was, I was, uh, I don't remember how I arrived here, but there's footage of Wayne Knight being, um, interviewed at like some kind of comic-con a few years ago before jurassic world came out like before anyone knew what it was and they were asking about like oh you know um if you were in a you know if there were a jurassic park four and he goes he goes i think i could be in it you know (laughs) he's like he goes the way i see it is uh you know it was a little dinosaur and a big meal uh-huh. He's like, I, I could just see after, you know, after a few minutes, the, the dinosaurs being like, uh, that's enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> he goes, you know, he goes, I show up in uh, with one arm and an eye patch. Why not? <laughs> and it just sounded very, uh, very delightful. But anyway, um, what I will say is that, sorry, uh, I've also been watching sorry? a lot of uh, clips of the Conan show in which he. Uh, these are older clips in which he makes fun of his associate producer, Jordan Schlansky, who has a very specific way about him. And uh, that reminded me a little bit of you and me as well, where I just hmm. am, am bothered by you so often and the things that you enjoy. Um, but anyway. <laughs> All right. So, okay, we can move on. Though. All right, I'll start. Uh, this is going to be a fairly short one. Hopefully. Uh, all older movies, I'm still doing... Uh, Blu-ray spring cle- spring cleaning. Okay. Um, so I watched uh, a 1919 silent film called Behind the Door, uh, directed by Irvin Willett. Okay. Uh, and oh my god, this movie is so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not expecting. First off, it was only 70 minutes, which is great. You gotta love those old short movies. Um, Although, I mean, I guess for that period, that's relatively long. It's not Griffith long, but you know. Yeah, I guess they went all, they went all over the place. There. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because uh, I remember there was uh, that uh, came out a couple years ago, the 1916 Sherlock Holmes, which was a full two hours and felt way longer. I wasn't a huge fan of that. Mm-hmm. This one, though, Behind the Door is so great. It takes place, um, it was made in 1919, it sort of takes place, um, you know, knowing that, that we're, that, you know, the U.S. is going to war against Germany in World War I. Um, and uh, so the first, the first, like, almost half of the movie is... It ended up being weirdly uh, specifically relevant today because the main character is a man named Oscar Krug, who is an American-born citizen okay. of German descent. And as soon as war is declared against Germany, the town like turns against him. Hmm. And he has this whole speech about... Um, or like and he ends up like you know he ends up winning the respect by beating them up. But first he has this... You know, these things about like I'm, you know... I'm an American. Then he says something like, um, it's, you know, basically people like you are worse for America's reputation than, uh, whatever you think we are. Who put this out? Uh, I, Oh, who put out the Blu-ray flick yeah. rally. Okay. And they put it out recently. Uh, months ago, <laughs> but recently enough that they thought, sure. Oh, this is very relevant. To- I wonder, but I mean, I, I don't know because, of, you know, I don't know when the process of having this movie restored, like right. did the restoration, you know, these things tend to take a long time. Yeah, so, um, uh, it could be a coincidence. Um, but then after that, it be, so it becomes a different movie after that when he actually, um, joins the, the Navy, um, and, and goes, to, goes away to, to fight. Uh, and I don't want to get too deep into what happens while Wallace Beery shows up hey, uh, as a German, uh, U-boat captain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, 
the movie ends up going to some really, really dark places, you know, about, uh, you know, just him imagining what his life will be like with his wife when the war's over and he goes back home and also maybe it will never be that. Like, and I don't mm. want to go too far into it, but it's like really sad. And also by the end, really crazy dark. Okay. Like in a way I was not expecting, um, that I, uh, I wish I could just tell you because it's, it's so crazy. Yeah. Um, but I really loved it. It's really, um, the restoration is good where it can be. There's a couple parts where there's just missing footage and they have yeah. just some stills and title cards saying, here's what happened at this point. Uh, you know, he fell in the water or whatever. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> so they lost the comic relief, I guess. <laughs> no, it's actually a tragic scene. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, and then there's some, some shots that are pretty, you know, the film was clearly, clearly damaged. Um, but it, it looks, it looks good. The tints and tones have been restored. Um, and, uh, it's definitely, I would say this movie, given my, my predilection for short movies, Mm -hmm. then the fact that it's exciting and relevant and incredibly sad and incredibly dark. Um, I don't normally do like a straight up, like recommend or don't recommend when it comes to like home video stuff, Mm -hmm. but if you were thinking about buying this Blu-ray, it's worth it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So behind the door. All right. So I, this is a rewatch, but it's been a very, very, very long time. Uh, not since high school have I seen this film. It is Slava Zuckerman's, uh, I don't know how, if that's how you pronounce it. I apologize. Uh, his film liquid sky, which is uh, an eighties, uh, punk sci-fi movie that I watched in high school and enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, and so, uh, it also got a, a Blu-ray release. Right. So um, I'm assuming you watched it in high school was VHS. Oh yes. Yeah. Which seems somehow more appropriate, <laughs> uh, given the nature of the film. Um, it is in many ways kind of a clunky film that I don't think I I don't think I had an appreciated, not appreciation. I don't think I thought in those terms at the time. Uh, I think the film is frustratingly paced, but when it is working, it is really astounding. Um, it's a film that just, I don't like to say stuff like this because it sounds almost shitty. This is a film that exists a hundred percent on its own terms. Mm -hmm. It's going to do what it does. And if you want to be there, Hey, neat, but it doesn't give a shit. Okay. Um, but it's not, I like adver- that. but it's not adversarial either. Like it's, it's, so <clears throat> it takes place in the, in a very specific type of the, the fashion scene of the early eighties in New York. And, but it's also like this, the, the avant-garde fashion and art scene. And so these fashions are th- not like the most eighties, not like essential eighties. It's extreme eighties. Like even at the time people like, wait, nobody dresses like this. <laughs> right. Um, and it is just, uh, a subculture of self-absorbed people who are into drugs and sex and the main character. Uh, so the main actress whose name escapes me, she plays two characters. She plays, uh, the, this female model and her male model nemesis. Oh, cool. And so, and both of them seem to, everybody seems to be just kind of striving for some kind of relationship, but they don't know that. And so instead they just indulge in meaningless 
uh, sex and rampant drug use. And then in the midst of all this, uh, <laughs> aliens show up. I don't, uh, we see their ship, which looks about the size of a dinner plate. And I don't mean the prop. I mean, their ship, I think <laughs> is actually meant to be that big. Uh, and so they feed upon the chemicals released in the human brain during a, uh, a, a heroin high, which are very similar to the, to the chemicals released during an orgasm. And so uh, when they feed upon these chemicals, the, the person then uh, dies. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so they've, they've settled into this particular area. And so the main character finds that like, she just keeps having sex with these guys and then they are dead immediately after. And she, and she doesn't know why only other people understand why, like a German scientist who shows up and will show up to explain to other characters, which is to say us what's going on. And Uh those are the moments that are pretty clunky and unnecessary. But uh, she soon realizes that this is a thing she can use. You know, this is a weapon. She doesn't understand it. And she does not understand that if she were to have an orgasm, she will also die. Uh, She only sees it as a thing she can do to other people that have hurt her in the past. And so... It's it's really fascinating. Like I said, it's it's by no means like a, an astonishing movie. You know, it's like I said, the pacing is off, but the way it uses music is it, it doesn't use conventional music. Certainly not uh, for the eighties. Um, it just exists outside of time. I think an argument could be made that the film is actually a little bit moralistic, um, considering that, and a little bit horror movie esque, Mm -hmm. uh, which you would find a lot in the eighties, these characters, the, the very thing that they are pursuing, which is orgasmic and chemical highs is the very thing that's going to kill them. And it is rampant in this particular community of people who no longer value the traditional things. And it's made by a a Russian filmmaker. I'm not sure necessarily what that means or what his particular values are, but it it really is a film that is, that is worth watching. It does look beautiful on Blu-ray. Um, but, uh, I was happy that I rewatched it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I was about to say it's a lot of fun. I'm not sure if I would say that, but I think if you're the right type of person, you will enjoy it tremendously. All right. I guess speaking of horror, okay. uh, I watched a 1933 movie that uh, was put out on Blu-ray by The Film Detective. Okay. Um, I like The Film Detective. I yeah. met The Film Detective last year at the at NAB, at the National, National Association of Broadcasters Convention How's he or in she Las doing? Vegas. He was good a year ago. Okay. Um, I don't know. I st- it's a little over a week away, and I still don't know if I'm going to NAB this year. So uh, we'll see. Um uh, work politics, you know, hey, got to get stuff you. approved anyway. <clears throat> so I watched this movie called the vampire bat. That is, I guess it's, I mean, it's, it's horror informed because it's mm-hmm. about a vampire. Yeah. But it's really more of a whodunit because, mm-hmm. um, and it's clearly made very cheaply. Um, like on the, I mean, there's good like locations that are clearly like the back lot at, you know, universal wherever. Um, and, um, but basically a bunch of people are being found dead with all their blood gone and holes in their neck. And everyone's like, uh, it's a vampire. And then the, 
Melvin Douglas plays the um, the town, the inspector or whatever, right. uh, and he's like, I don't believe in vampires, so he wants to find out what it really is. Um, and I, I wish that were his <laughs> delivery. I don't believe in vampires, so uh, and they're like, wow, this guy really doesn't care. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like it has all the stuff and it ends up, I, I almost feel bad giving away the ending, but, um, I'm going to give away the ending a little bit. Yeah. He's wrong. It's a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess our hero just looks like a doofus by the end. Yeah. Cause he spent 60 minutes, a 65 minute movie, which is fun. Um, but the, uh, love interest slash of course, inevitable damsel in distress is played by Faye Ray. Um, and she's, she's terrific. Uh, great screen presence there. Um, you've got to, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a, I guess it's a kind of a fun movie, but it's kind of, it doesn't really go anywhere. It, there's none of the horror parts are scary because, uh, they're all, they all happen off screen. Um, there's a, uh, a cute dog. Okay. Uh, cause there is like a comic relief lady who's like the, I think she's supposed to be the maid at the doctor's house or whatever. All right. And she's like super, super superstitious, I guess yeah. is what she is. Um, and so she's always the entire time she's panicking about one thing or another. And there's a part when she's already upset about all the people being drained of blood. And then like the local dog comes up and like jumps and like puts his like, uh, like yes. a tall, tall dog and like, and then she freaks out about the dog. <laughs> um, and I thought the dog was really cute. <laughs> she runs inside and closes the, like the dog's chasing around. Clearly just wants to play. She runs inside and closes the door and the dog's like, what, 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 <laughs> Uh, the way dogs are, it was just cute. Was anyway. it, uh, was it, yeah, that's right. Was it Una O'Connor? She always played like the, uh, the terrified, uh, um, is she in this movie? I don't know. Oh no. I but it feels so. like she should be. No, I, um, I think, uh, Maud Eburn. Okay. Well, I guess that makes sense too. The character's name is aunt Gussie Schnuppman. So, all right. <laughs> um, that's it. Well, what's next for you? That's the, you know, that's the thing about some of those like older films. Like I, I reviewed the film white zombie with, uh, Bela Lugosi and you know, I've heard of the vampire bat. I've mm-hmm. heard of, uh, I had heard of white zombie and you know, there are people, you know, horror fans that just like love these old timey things. <clears throat> and then you watch them. They're, like, they're not really, some of them of course are amazing and have gotten somehow better over the years. And some are just like, okay, this is, this could not be more a function of its time. I can appreciate it on that level, right. but that's kind of where it stops. Yeah. Yeah. The big, the, the exciting thing about white zombie is that they, is that it has to do with voodoo. And so it takes place, uh, uh, in Haiti, but there are still like these old, like Frankenstein type castles. I'm like, I don't think they had those in Haiti. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, um, oh, that's fine. Okay. So, um, I saw Armando Iannucci's the death of Stalin. Oh, yay. Now, David, <clears throat> you know that for many, many years I have had a preoccupation with Soviet Russia. Literally uh, as long as I've known you. Yes. Ever since my modern European history class, my sophomore year of high school, and then certainly solidified in my Russian and Soviet history class in college. Uh, it's just something that I've always found interesting is that this, that, you know, when we talk about Soviet Russia, we talk about it as like, Oh, it's this failed thing. And of course we talk about the, the monstrosity of Stalin. Um, 
But like it was one of the two big powers in the world. Yeah. You know, we were, you know, in a cold war with them. And now here's the thing. Russia lost the cold war long before they gave up. Uh, they ran out of materials. They ran mm-hmm. out of really anything. Uh, like not really long after Khrushchev uh, was out of power. Um, and so, but yeah, I've always been fascinated by Soviet Russia and Stalin and Trotsky and all of those guys. So when I had heard about the death of Stalin, I thought like, okay, it's going to be like a, a, a funny, you know, just a, a farcical thing about Soviet Russia. What I didn't realize is, oh yeah, okay, so everything in that movie actually happens or has happened. Like the yeah, the, I've read a lot about it. Some of it, like, okay, yeah, some of it. I mean, the movie makes it look like everything happened in like three or four days. It happened over a right, long was, time. It, yeah, it was stretched out. Um, in fact, the whole thing about the I shouldn't lie. This is the this is what kind of dark comedy the Stalin is. The whole yeah. thing about the uh, hockey team dying in a plane crash and then the trying to pretend like they hadn't died by filming yeah. that actually happened, but that was like two yeah. years later. That was, but yeah, within a few, I mean, within a few, uh, minutes of the film, I realized like, not that I, not that I know a lot about Soviet mm-hmm. Russia, not that it's all committed to memory, but I remember a few of the stories and the one of Stalin wanting, a recording of a concert of a specific concert, but they had, that he knew it had happened, but they had not recorded it. So then they had to like restage it. Yeah. Like within a few minutes, I was like, Oh shit, they're doing, they're just telling real stories. But see, I looked that one up too. And that's a, a, apparently a commonly shared story, but not necessarily. It's probably not true. Apparently from what I've read, the pianist, uh, uh-huh. the, Parts of her story, not the note, but parts of her story are true. She was called like what they do with the conductor essentially happened with her. She was called in at the last minute to like do this thing because Stalin wanted it. So there, you know, as tends to happen, like any story about how insane Stalin was probably has some basis in truth. Yeah. Um, But yeah, as far as like the idea of not. The, the bureaucracy of, of not even really knowing what to do with Stalin's body uh, or when he's sick and yeah. not making any decisions until everybody was there for fear that someone somewhere could say we've done something uh-huh. wrong. Like it's all, yeah, it's all real and it all happened. And I was so excited that that was what they were choosing to do. And I also realized like, Oh boy, that character is going to get shot in the head. Yeah. Uh, and sure enough yeah. he did. And and incredibly dark things like the character that I'm speaking of, and I won't say who it is, but yeah, he did have a genuine history of horrendous rape, uh, you know, and systematic as well. And everybody knew about it. And so it really, but it's also, it's very funny, but not unlike in the loop, uh, or veep. Um, it's also, it's very insightful and it's, and, Honestly, I believe that the the lessons of Soviet Russia are always going to be relevant because on one hand you have the idea you have it being very relevant to like the the Trump administration not that they're necessarily murdering anybody but just like this constant chaos ridiculous sure, yeah. chaos it's it's almost yeah. a french farce over there with people you know doors are opening and closing certainly yeah yeah um, yeah um, um also just the idea it's like if you'll pardon me, this is, this tends to be why 
I, I view myself as like a, a small government conservative because the, this is who runs government, <laughs> you know, like right. in the same way that like with Dr. Strangelove or whatever, there's a line in all the president's men wear deep throats. Like the fact is these aren't very bright guys. <laughs> so it's like, so when you bring in the idea of like death and arrests and that yeah. sort of thing, it's like, it makes it ridiculous but the lives are on the line. Yeah. And, and so it's a film that I think everybody should see. I think they would enjoy it. It uh, is truly funny. It is truly funny. Um, it, Je- everybody has the, a fun moment. Jeffrey Tambor has a lot of great moments. Yeah. The, the scene, it, unfortunately, it was spoiled in the trailer, but it's still funny when he but says, no problem. Oh, I thought you meant the, because uh, the part I like that's in the trailer, but is funnier with more context mm-hmm. is when he goes, all of you can kiss my, <laughs> my Russian, Russian ass, ass. <laughs> which is funny enough in the trailer. But when you get the context of yeah. what all of you means yeah. in that scene, it's even funnier. Yeah. <laughs> and just, and it's, and that, that guy, uh, uh, Malenkov, he, he was such a, that he was just so ineffective at the time, like to the point that nobody even remembers him. Like people think of like Stalin Khrushchev, like they don't even, he's not even part of the conversation as far as being in charge. He was such an ineffectual leader. Um, anyway, sorry, we can, we can move on, but it's it's a, it's a fun movie. Here's a tease for an episode we should probably do pretty soon, like a main episode. Okay. But, um, how do we feel watching stuff like Jeffrey Tambor, like saying Jeffrey Tambor is good in that knowing like in the wake of the whole me too thing, Mm -hmm. And some of his uh, um, asshole, asshole-ish and predatory behavior coming out, like, and I guess we got to come up with like Ready Player One coming out that has T.J. Miller in it, and Deadpool Two has T.J. Miller in it. Like, what did T.J. Miller do? Um, I've lost track. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, some of these I lose track. This one, uh, it, there's a couple of things. One is a thing going back to his time in college when he allegedly uh, like physically assaulted a woman while he was intimate with her and like broke her jaw. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. And then there was a more recent thing with it. That's I think less publicized, but it's sort of within the film Twitter community. Um, and I don't want to call it any names, but he, um, uh, went off on a, uh, a transgender, uh, person, um, publicly or not, not publicly, uh, in an email that she then, uh, shared after the other stuff had come out. Mm-hmm. Um, in which he was like basically accusing, I don't want to go through accusing her of being like mentally ill and not really being trans, whatever that means as if that's like his place to anyway. So yeah, I'm I'm with you within the sense that like, uh, yeah, sometimes I forget who did what to, but I do find the TJ Miller ones particularly, uh, upsetting, especially since one. Yeah. So once the thing about his college thing came out, it seemed like it like freed other people up to be like, yeah, that guy's been in it. Cause then, cause this, this woman shared her thing. And then I don't know if you followed like, uh, Mike judge and like the Silicon Valley people, what seemed like a mostly amicable parting at the time. Um, it didn't even seem that amicable. Like TJ Miller had like spoken out of oh, yeah, like, not liking where the show yeah, was he going. He talked shit, but yeah. I guess the, 
the other cast members and Mike Judge kind of, I guess, held their tongues yeah. at the time. And Mike Judge has since come out and said, like, yeah, we needed him to go because he was the most unreliable. He was, um, you know, he would show up late and inebriated and forget his line. And, like, everything, yeah. every scene with him took way too long uh, and wasted, wasted people's days. It seems like once one thing comes out, everyone's like, yeah, that guy's been an asshole, which kind of, yeah. like, this is more insiders. I don't know. I can't name any names, but it kind of happened with Jeffrey Tambor too. Like once right. it came out about him, like um, harassing like other actresses or assistants and stuff like no. that. Then there just were some general stories that I've heard from people in the know about. Oh, like I did like one person was like, I didn't see any sexual harassment, but I can tell you Jeffrey Tambor is an asshole. <laughs> um, I, I could see that, <laughs> which is such a, which is a shame. I know it's dumb to say this, but like, ah, oh, his, his character in, uh, Larry Sanders is just such a lovable guy, <laughs> yeah. but I recognize that he's acting. Yeah. Um, so I think we should do an episode, maybe find a guest uh, who would want to uh, talk about this and see how we, how, uh, how we feel. Not only like, cause it was really, there was um, something in uh, entertainment weekly. They were, I can't remember why they were writing, mentioning, I guess because Duncan Jones had mute coming out. They mentioned moon mm-hmm. and they were like, uh, um, and you know, so the one character is voiced by Kevin Spacey, which is too bad. Like that was like what, how they, right. how they wrote it. And it did get me thinking like, you know, how do like, uh, you know, this is so much has come to light. Like there yeah. are so many movies that are affected by it. Uh, how do we enjoy those or, or do we enjoy those? I think, I mean, I think I still can, but, uh, it's a conversation worth having. We should do an episode. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. Uh, is it my turn or your yes, turn? Yes, yours. So I just have the one and then we're done. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Tyler. Yeah. I watched, and I'm, I'm late to the bandwagon with this, uh, but t- speaking of 1980s, very 1980s movies, there's a movie that has been, I guess, rediscovered by a lot of people. It was a box office failure back in 1984, directed by Walter Hill. It's called Streets of Fire. Oh yeah. Okay. Have you seen it? I've not. Okay. So it was recently, I guess restored and then shout factory put out a Blu-ray, which is what I watched. Uh, sorry. Shout selects put out a Blu-ray. Um, uh, and again, I feel like I'm late to the party, but I have to tell you, this movie is so great. Yeah. It's nonstop. I think by and large, I like Walter Hill. Yeah, I think I do too. Um, uh, I'd love for you to see the assignment. This <laughs> is the most recent movie. Cause I know I we got into a big conversation about I that. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's, the, it's such a bummer, like to realize that this movie was a flop because it's like, what do you want out of movies? If you don't like this, <laughs> it's so much fun. It is like, I think like 93 minutes. It's nonstop. It does not ever pause to be boring at any point. Um, it takes place and it's a sort of retro futuristic thing where I guess it takes place in maybe the near future, but also the past because everything is very like, you know, it's very eighties in terms of the way it looks in terms of like, there's a lot of fog used and there's a lot of neon, but it's also neon in the sense that it's very fifties. It's very rockabilly. It's very pompadours and Studebakers and switchblades and like All (laughs) all kinds of stuff. Um, and, uh, uh, it builds, it's it refers to itself in the opening titles as a rock and roll fable um and Diane, so Diane Lane plays a a rock star from a poor neighborhood in a um what's i guess supposed to be chicago ish it never says it's chicago but it's clearly chicago right. um and she's you know she's become a star she's come back to town to her neighborhood to do a little benefit and while she's there performing 
uh, uh, Willem Dafoe and his biker, biker gang show up, storm the place, beat everybody up, and kidnap her. Okay. And then um, uh, her ex-boyfriend, who went away to the military for the military for a couple of years, he, ha- he happens to come back in town. He's played by Michael Perry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, whom I mostly know from his one really awesome scene in The Virgin Suicides. Remember when he's he's the adult Josh Hartnett? Oh, yeah. He's so great in okay. that scene. That's mostly what I think of, but I know he was Eddie in The Cruises, which I yeah. never saw, but I know yeah. he was Eddie, right? Yes. And, um, anyway, so he plays Tom Cody, the, the the star, and so he comes back, and people are like, you got to save your ex-girlfriend. Oh, yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Diane Lane is his ex-girlfriend. He's like, no, that's over, man. I'm in it for myself now, or whatever. Um, but then he gets. But then Rick Moranis, who plays Diane Lane's manager slash new boyfriend, who's a total Weasley uh, prick, he offers to pay Tom Cody to go to the bad part of town where Willem Dafoe is to rescue. He takes along with him uh, a tough broad played by um, uh, Amy Madigan, the like mom hey. for Feel the Dreams. Awesome. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and she's like this uh, like military like jumpsuit boot wearing like hard drinking cigar smoking badass. Uh, and they go uh, with Rick Moranis to rescue Diane Lane and then the bikers come back. It's just like it never stops being and it has it has such a great cast. Like I've, I've named like the main players, yeah. but like Bill Paxton shows up as a bartender. Um, there's a um, uh, there's a like a doo-wop group that has Michael T. Williamson and Robert Townsend and then also an actor whose name I've already forgotten, but he's one of the agent Johnson's from die hard. Oh, okay. You know, (laughs) the the one when, when, uh, uh, who's the one guy says just like Nam, right? And the other guy says, I was in junior high. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. So that guy, uh, who else? Uh, Ed Begley Jr. is in one scene as a uh, he's this a homeless guy. Eighties cast. <laughs> yeah, he's the, the homeless guy who like knows everything. So like when they're trying to figure out where they're keeping Diane Lane, he knows because he's the homeless guy who has his ear to the ground. This is working for me. I gotta say, <laughs> um, it's it's so much fun. It's nonstop music. Um, it's nonstop action. Oh yeah, I forgot. William Defoe's right hand man in the biker gang is leaving. I know, right? Uh, It's so great, Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's really exciting and fun. And I mean, the the dialogue is so fast talking and hard boiled um, that I I guess that's the part I can understand. Maybe audiences weren't uh, like it has the cult feel because you kind of had you would have to be already in touch with the references to Mm -hmm. find it enjoyable. Otherwise it's like, why is everyone saying these corny lines so quickly all the time? Yeah. You know what I mean? If if you were just expecting a regular movie movie, I guess, um, maybe that it would be kind of a turnoff to people, but, uh, it's got motorcycles. It's got explosions. It's got neon. It's got all kinds of, all kinds of great stuff. Uh, and it's in, in Chicago. A lot of it was shot on sound stages here, but it's, there's clearly Chicago oh, stuff fun. all over the place. Boy, oh Streets boy. of fire. It's, it's so great. All right. it's, again, I'm late to the party, but it's so great. Okay.